Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Today, we dive into the world of wealth management with one of the industry's leaders, Haig Aryan. Haig has seen it all. He went from someone who grew up in the advisory world as a wealth manager at Dean Witter Reynolds to ultimately becoming president and CEO of Alex Brown, America's first investment banking arm. At Alex Brown, he oversaw 220 financial advisors and $70 billion in client assets. When Alex Brown sold to Raymond James Financial, Haig became the head of global wealth solutions. Prior to Alex Brown, Haig was head of Deutsche Bank Wealth Management in the Americas. Haig is taking his experience to build RX Investment Partners. Together with Redbird Capital, an $8 billion private equity firm focused on financial services and sports and media, RX is partnering with wealth and asset management firms and teams to build a differentiated platform that takes lessons learned and deep experience from running wealth management businesses. Haig and RX are well capitalized and off to a flying start. They've already acquired their first few wealth businesses, as well as a billion-dollar AUM broker-dealer that will give them the foundation to build on as a hybrid platform. Haig and I had a fascinating conversation about the evolution of wealth management and how alts are playing a big role in shaping the future of wealth. We discussed what it means to be an advisor, why modern portfolio theory was such an important innovation for the industry, why the hybrid brokerage advisory model makes sense, how alts can be a differentiator for advisor practices, and how to build a platform that incentivizes advisor teams. Thanks, Haig, for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wealth of wisdom. We're going mainstream. Haig, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. I think you have such a fascinating perspective on the evolution of the wealth management industry in so many ways and can really talk about the intersection of wealth and alts in a number of different vantage points. I want to start with the overarching theme of today's podcast, which is you've seen it all. You've been a part of bank platforms. You've been a part of independence. I'd love for you to walk us through the evolution of the wealth space in the context of your career. Wow, Michael. So I'm happy to do that. And I I would say the evolution of my career is part of the knowledge I can share. But my father was a Merrill Lynch financial consultant before me. So I actually have a view that started as a teenager. Then I have a view that started while I was in college. Then I have a view that started my actual career as a financial advisor. Always consider myself to be an FA. I pride myself on that. When I'm meeting with firms today or I'm meeting with other financial advisors, I make it clear that I view myself as an FA. I still have a few clients that insist on working directly with me. And in some ways, your clients very much experience that evolution with you. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my father, although he was an immigrant to this country, always wanted to be involved in the stock market. And ultimately, he became what was known back then as a stockbroker. But that was a financial consultant, and he was at the great firm of Merrill Lynch in the 80s. So that inspired me and interested me. But I saw what the business was back then. And it was very much an individual stock-driven portfolio solution that you as a financial consultant were bringing to your clients. 
When I was going to school at, at Rutgers University at night, I used to go to the local Dean Witter office and cold call for financial advisors. My goal was to get meetings set up for them. From the business development side of the business back then, it was still cold calling. You were calling into houses, you were trying to get meetings, you were going out and teaching them about mutual funds and managed money, et cetera. So the business evolved from a business development standpoint from that cold calling days to the referral days to the professional networking days. Then it really became a business, which is a very, very good thing. You had to develop expertise. It went from a telemarketing business to a true expertise business. But from a product and solution standpoint, when my father was in the business, he was a stockbroker, individual stocks. When I got into the business, mutual funds came along. Obviously, they were along much sooner than that, but they really became more a part of what financial consultants used. Then separately managed accounts and money managers came along. And the, and the whole time, it was sort of an expression of modern portfolio theory, which in the 20th century evolved to this is how you manage money. And, and by the way, I think modern portfolio theory is one of the great financial intellectual implementations of the last century. And I think that alts, which we're going to talk about today, is further proof that modern portfolio theory is a great implementation for individuals, institutions, and corporations. The mutual funds became a differentiator, then separately managed accounts became a differentiator. Then you started to get structured products and these derivatives of individual stocks. Then alts started to become more integrated into the wealth management solution. And the first version of them was hedge funds. So you're hearing this as a financial advisor, maybe at the time I was in my 20s or late 20s, and they're talking about hedge funds. So I'm, okay, I better learn what these hedge funds are because everyone's starting to talk about them. They were expensive and they told you these have a lot of risk to them. So you have to make sure that you understand the risk associated to them. And you're thinking, okay, well, if they're a hedge, they're taking risk out. Why are they called hedge? Because they enhance risk. It was just total misrepresentations and misinformation on so many levels. But it was the introduction to alts. Then private equity started to get put into structures that you could access them as a financial advisor for your clients. Real estate started to become available, albeit the first versions of it in non-traded REITs, extremely expensive, extremely non-investor friendly, but those too have evolved over time. So alts became something that was much more normalized and now they're becoming more and more democratized is what we keep hearing about. And they're, they're going into retail portfolios, but that evolution as a financial advisor in the wealth management business was both from a business development side, how you built your business in the American way, which is something I'm happy to talk about too, because I worked for Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank bought America's oldest investment bank, Alex Brown, through its acquisition of Bankers Trust. We had a big European bank buying a firm that had a commission-based wealth management division, which is an interesting conversation in and of itself. But you had the business development of wealth management evolve and change. Then you had the more important part, the investment implementation and products evolve and change and get better and better. And the whole time you had this technology evolution or this innovation evolution, which was a threat to wealth management. It was a threat to financial advisors. That threat could start all the way back from individual stocks. You get introduced to mutual funds. Oh, well, the stockbroker is going to have nothing left to do. Well, how are they going to be in the business? You had separately managed accounts. Well, who needs a financial advisor if you've got separately managed accounts? Then the discount brokers come in. Who's going to actually pay commissions to a financial advisor when you've got these? And ETFs came in. Well, who's going to actually invest in money managers, use SMAs, even 
farther away from needing a financial advisor because now you have passive investing. Then you had robo-investing come in and who the heck is going to need a financial advisor when everything is going to get automated? And every one of these has proven that evolution has only strengthened the financial advisor's role in the relationship with individual clients. And to me, it's, it's exciting. It inspires me that the FA and the client have only gotten stronger through all of this. And I'll make one last point on this. Through all of it, there were these black swan events that were taking place. The more black swans you have, the less of a black swan they become, right? But they kept happening. When I first went into the business, you had a Latin American crisis that killed the stock market. Then you had rates went flying and you had the Russian crisis. Then you had 9-11 take place. Then you had the great financial crisis, which obviously impacted everybody. And then you had COVID. And through all of it, what has proven itself? Modern portfolio theory, proper asset allocation, good advice. So all those parallels are really, I think, strengthening for the wealth manager and their role. That's a great segue into, I want to touch on what you said about all these different things happening. There are these changes in the market, in the ecosystem of wealth management, but yet the one constant is it seems like the wealth manager hasn't really changed in the sense that they're still there. What does it mean to you to be a wealth manager? How do you define wealth management? What do you think they do? Well, it's a, it's a great point. So yes, the wealth manager is still there, but what's changed? And I really do believe this, they've gotten better. For all those reasons I mentioned, we as a profession have gotten so much better. 30 years ago, when I first took my Series 7 and trained, it was almost like the priority was generating commissions and your production. That was ethically wrong. It was antithetical to the mission that we play in people's lives. That has gone away. It is no longer a business that's driven by how much money you can make. It's a business that's truly driven by we are empowered with these tools in solutions and technology and information flow that the role we can play in the lives of families and institutions that they impact is a really, really, really important role. I say I'm a financial advisor, not just because I think it resonates. I say I'm a financial advisor because I care so much about the role we play in people's lives. If you ask anyone that ever worked with me, whether it was my days at Raymond James, Alex Brown, or Deutsche Bank, I used to say very emphatically, we have a sacred responsibility that people are trusting us with, and you have to take it very, very seriously. I, I think that the evolution has been a very, very positive one. And a lot of the bad actors, there'll always be bad actors in every business where there's opportunity, but through the partnership with regulators and through the advancements of technology and the ability to grow really good quality businesses that an individual advisor can own, I think a lot of them have been weeded out. I really do believe that. So I'm going to get to something that's kind of touches on some of this evolution of the wealth management space. And I don't mind doing some hard hitting questions here at all because mainstream. So just be warned in that sense. So in the context of the wealth management industry evolving, you've gone from the brokerage business to some extent. Now you have the independent channel. But what's so fascinating about the independent channel is that private equity is playing such a large role in the independent channel. As we know, private equity firms have their own LPs. They have a fiduciary responsibility to generate returns for those investors. How do you think that impacts the wealth space? Because ultimately, whether they're roll-ups, whether they're platforms that are private equity backed, those investors are going to need returns. What does that do to the industry? Yeah, Michael, it's a great question. 
I'm going to go back to when I was growing up in the business. In the days at Alex Brown, it was viewed as an investment bank that had a wealth management arm. And it was a great wealth management arm. And it was. It was a great investment bank with a great wealth management arm. Bankers Trust buys them. Why? For the investment banking expertise, not for the wealth management arm. Deutsche Bank buys Bankers Trust. Why? For the investment bank, for the capital, trading, et cetera, not the wealth management business. But what came with it was a wealth management business. Fast forward for the 2000s, Deutsche Bank has this great investment bank in the United States that it got in through the Alex Brown Bankers Trust acquisition. So the whole time, I'm one of these guys that's growing up in the private client business. And I'm constantly feel like I'm fighting and arguing and waving this wealth management flag in front of senior management to say, guys, you're missing something here. We are a great franchise within this large investment bank. We bring in the clients. Those clients are C-suite. Those clients are entrepreneurs. Those clients are real estate. They're families. They need this service. And this service is a recurring revenue service. It is a steady revenue stream where you don't have to dedicate risk capital to it. You don't have to dedicate balance sheet to it. But if you want to, you can provide a lending outlet to it if you're a bank. And it provides a distribution outlet for your lending. Yeah, yeah, okay, they'd hear it, but they'd say, but this quarter, we generated a billion dollars in net profit in our investment bank and 200 million in wealth management. Okay, fine. What happens? The great financial crisis opens the eyes of Wall Street and these large investment firms and large money center banks to the value of these wealth franchises. Even Merrill Lynch, the thundering herd inside of B of A, provides this tremendous value to B of A. And it's something that I really hope B of A always will ultimately respect the value of their culture and the commercial value of what they bring to that organization. But that's post-financial crisis. So in the financial crisis, their eyes open up to say, what is proving to be one of our great assets within this portfolio of businesses we have? Wealth management. So of course, who catches on next? Private equity. And private equity says, wait a minute, there's steady returns here. There's a steady return on our investment. The real value is in the relationship this financial advisor has with these clients. And the fact is that there's this secular trend where more and more of these independent firms are popping up. And some of them are coming out of the large wirehouses and the national firms. And some of them already exist. And private equity realizes okay, we've historically had roll-ups in car washes, in plumbing, in air conditioning, into every bit of printing. Everything's had this roll-up model, which is a simple model. The first iterations of private equity coming in were just roll-ups. You're seeing some of them now who are monetizing or having some sort of realizations that higher rates make it a little bit harder to to just keep doing a roll-up. But now what's happening, and I think Arox is an important part of this, we're actually building wealth management firms, wealth management organizations with great professionals. Not to say the roll-ups don't. The roll-ups have plenty of great professionals. But the mission's a little bit different in that we want to build a great wealth management organization. And private equity backing that, I think, is a realization that you can invest in this business, in, in wealth management, without taking an inordinate amount of risk. There's steady returns. There's steady margins. There's great service that it's providing to the general public and to corporations. And by the way, you can scale it either quickly or methodically and slowly. It gives a lot of optionality to private equity. I know you were asking today, but I think that history is kind of cool to think about where the eyes opened up to the great value of this wealth management business 
economically. It's always provided a great service that's needed, and it's only gotten better at it, as I said. But I think the great financial crisis was a real eye-opener for private equity and, and investment banking. I think you bring up some really good points there, particularly that I think banks have realized how great of a business wealth management can be. And obviously, independents have and private equity firms have as well. Here we are, you say you're building a wealth management platform a little bit different than the roll-ups. Talk to me about what you're building at Rx and then how that ties into the future of what wealth management looks like. Rx is a portfolio company of Redbird Capital. Right? Redbird Capital Fund 4 owns Rx Investment Partners. Rx is something I founded with Mike Zabik, the head of financial services at Redbird. It's really to express the opportunity and the view of the wealth management space, though, so these roll-ups have gone on, but is there enough opportunity out there to build a true wealth practice? And my view that I gave to them was, look, these pure RIAs that are only doing fee-based business are trading for very meaningful multiples, rightfully so. They're truly good businesses. They don't have a lot of risk. They're uniform in their solution. They serve clients well. So investing in them is a wise and sound decision. But the entry points have become a little bit challenging. I, however, having grown up in the firms I grew up in and the firms that I was fortunate enough to manage, was always a big believer that the hybrid financial advisor who can deliver a brokerage solution as a complement to an advisory solution and incorporate alternative investments into that solution skillfully is, is the best solution for wealthy clients the general public and institutions. I said that to my partners when we first started talking. And I said, that's where I think this trend in the independent space is missing the boat a little bit. It's too focused on the pure advisory client. And what that's done is it's led to a sort of lack of focus on instituting alternative investments into portfolios because many, many FAs use alts on a brokerage basis and get boxed out if it's only on a pure advisory basis. Now, many of them evolved to doing them just on an advisory basis, which I think is good. But right now, when the secular trend towards independence is in the second inning, you're still delaying or missing out on a lot of that talent that's either in a national firm or a wirehouse or is within a smaller RIA and hasn't embraced alts yet. So what we decided on together was we would pursue a couple of hybrid platforms that are good and well-structured to embrace and implement using alternative investments on a scaled basis. While at the same time, we would look for pure RIAs and advisory firms that maybe had um, a differentiated solution to them. They might have had an expertise in the insurance and in wealth planning, in generational wealth planning. They may have an expertise in tax work. They might have a, a meaningful tax practice within their business. Um, but something differentiated that doesn't just make them a plug-and-play uh, RIA that can be plugged into one of the aggregators that's going on. And what's happened, Michael, is in 11 months since we've been set up, the volume of opportunity we've seen has far exceeded my expectations, such that we now have a company that we've invested in, we've partnered with to use as our branded platform that we are going to focus on adding breakaway financial advisor teams to over the next few years. And I'm really, really excited about that. We'll probably be announcing that firm within the next 30 to 60 days. We're really thrilled at that foundation. What we've also done is we've acquired a, a small billion dollar broker dealer based in New York 
that is going to become the branded broker dealer within that platform. And that's going to position us to be empowered with a robust alts suite of solutions, much of which we're going to be adding over the coming months. Um, that will allow us to embrace these breakaway teams that are seeking to come on board. The breakaway trend is going to continue, as I said, is in the early innings. If you want to be able to handle the best breakaway teams coming off of these platforms, you have to be in a position to support their business without great disruption. I think we're going to be ready for that real soon. In your mind, is Alt the biggest reason why a team A may not break away because they have a great menu? at the firm that they're with, or B, if they could break away to a platform that had great alts capabilities, then they would? I would say that it's in the top five reasons that a team would not break away, Michael, but I wouldn't say it's the greatest reason. Alts technology, whether it be through iCapital or Case or a number of these other providers, the ability to access those solutions is much more available in the independent space now than it was even 12 months ago or 24 months ago. So that can't be the roadblock forever. It's the technology is getting more and more readily available. I think the biggest reason financial advisors don't move to the independent space is they're naive to the opportunity. There's a lack of understanding of what's out there. Even I had that. For 30 years, I was in the full service wealth management space for 28 years full service, big bank, balance sheet, investment bank behind me, trading desks, derivatives. I thought we were the varsity team and everyone else was junior varsity. It's a totally naive, uninformed view that I had. And I think a lot of financial advisors have that. The second reason is just inertia. It's inertia and comfort and a fear of that unknown that I mentioned before. And I have to tell you, it is amazing. The technology, the products, the solutions, the readiness of the independent platforms to embrace the best financial advisors, it is now plug and play and ready to go. So I'm so excited and pleased that we can take care of clients and take care of FAs without skipping a beat. Well, you have a fascinating vantage point and perspective to do this because like you said, you're at Alex Brown, you're at Deutsche Bank Wealth Management, so you had a big bank platform, you're at Raymond James. What do you feel like you need to build at Rx to provide the advisors or the breakaways with the breadth and depth of the full suite of services that will give them that quote unquote varsity feel, like you say. I, from the beginning, said to my partners, and I continue to believe this is the case, we don't need to build it. You don't build it from scratch. It's available to buy. We have signed three deals. Um, we have another four to six that are in signed LOIs and will be public information soon. Um, these are operating platforms that we're seeking a partner who had the same aspirations in the wealth management business that they did. And Arox, you know, frankly, has fit that for a, a few of these firms. There are many that we don't have a fit with, but with these three that we've signed and the others that I mentioned are coming soon, we fit culturally and commercially and more importantly, strategically at this point in their evolution. So we're going to be acquiring firms that have robust wealth management platforms, have technology. Now the technology is a combination of what your custodian relationship provides, what your overlay is in between Black Diamond and Investnet and Orion. There's such great technology in the independent space that you just need to know how to package it and put it together for FAs. And we have already gotten to that point. Then being able to partner with the right firms to access alternative investments so that FAs can incorporate them into their solution, 
it's not a rocket science to do it. I really think FAs can feel very comfortable that the space is is ripe for those platforms to, to launch. It's not rocket science, but there are a lot of complexities in a few different ways. You mentioned a few key words that I want to touch on. One is culture. The other is technology. So how do you think about integrating these different teams or platforms into the culture that you have at Arox? And how is that informed by the structure in which you plan to build it? I've had other platforms on Alco's mainstream, Dynasty, Hightower. There's different ways of doing this. There's no one right or wrong. It just, to your point, has to be the right fit. So how do you think about all that? My whole career, I've said that it's quality over quantity, and we need to be able to partner with the financial advisors that fit what we want to do, that fit what we want to execute on, who are the right people for the culture that we want to build. And truth be told, Michael, it was very hard to do it in many of those larger firms I was in because there was always pressure. The pressure was competitive pressure and the pressure was corporate pressure. Now, when you start with a clean slate and your partner has an aligned view with you, Jerry Cardinal, who's the founder of Redbird, has said something internally. He says, Redbird is not a place that just writes checks. It's a firm that writes business plans. And if that business plan is aligned with the entrepreneur or the executive that's our partner, then we execute. That business plan that we wrote together, one of the primary principles of it was that we will only add teams that align with us culturally, ethically, and strategically. So we can be very, very selective in what we're doing. We're not in a rush. We don't have to execute within a certain time frame. We are already ahead of, of, of where we might have expected to be because although we didn't have a specific time frame to act on, we had an aspirational time frame, which we're quite a bit ahead of. We can pick and choose, fortunately, the firms, because as I mentioned earlier, the volume of opportunity we're seeing is beyond what I expected. There are 16,000 RIAs in the country. Matter of fact, someone recently told me there was 17,000. Maybe since I started quoting 16, it's already added 1,000. But there's 16,000 RIAs, and I believe 4,000 of them are over a quarter billion in AUM. Those are very real businesses. Within that 16,000, many of them are looking for a partner. We've had a lot of opportunity and things where we said, hey, we're not your right partner. And a number of them where we said, we are your right partner. We'd love to try to pursue this together. We're being very, very methodical, deliberate, and we're in a position to be able to do that. I'm inspired by that. That actually makes me feel much better about what we're doing. In some senses, you've had the benefit of being a follower. And in some entrepreneurial pursuits, being a follower is actually an advantage. You get to see what happened before you, see what worked and what didn't work. What did you and Redbird come up with that makes Rx different from some of the other platforms or even your old prior experiences that came before you? It's a great question, Michael. And I will tell you one thing I made clear and my partners agreed with me. We want every FA and every firm that becomes part of the Rx ecosystem, whether they're joining our branded platform or we're partnering with them separately as an investor, they have to have equity, real equity not performance-driven equity that may or may not have some value one day, but real equity from day one. We're taking majority stakes. We're not buying firms outright. You'll never hear us say, we've bought this firm outright. We've partnered with these firms, and they truly have equity. The old model of acquiring 
an FA's practice was always an employee forgivable loan. You join our firm. We forgive that loan over seven to 10 years. And it always felt culturally flawed. I made it clear I had no bid for continuing to do that. And if I was going to leave the big firm platform, I wanted to do something different. So we're very confident that when we do an asset purchase and we're purchasing the future goodwill of that financial advisor, because the truth is he owns his clients. Without him, those clients are not doing business. Therefore, he will keep 30 to 40% of the equity in his practice, and we will acquire 60 to 70% in a typical Arox uh, investment in a financial advisor's practice when we add them to our platform on a W-2 basis. We are an independent firm, but we're actually bringing on partners as W-2 employees who have equity, so they participate in the profitability on top of their payout. So that brings up an interesting question when you think about the structure of Arox. From a client acquisition perspective, do you consider Rx more of a competitor to the wirehouses or private banks on Wall Street than you do the independent advisors in a sense because the way that you're structured? I view the firms that we're going to be investing in and growing as the competitors to the wealth management firms, including the large wirehouses, but also including other independents and other planning firms. Rox is the investment arm or the investment vehicle that's going to be acquiring firms that I'd love to be talking about those brands today. um, But I just think the timing is such that you'll be hearing about them in the press real soon, Michael. And and maybe you and I will revel in those news releases together. But those firms absolutely, with Rox as a partner, will be competing with all of the wealth management firms. The banks are, are a bit different. The banks have great advantages in that they lend money off of their balance sheet. Well, more and more independent firms, including those that we're going to partner with, have the ability to access balance sheet for their clients. It's really important that you can do that in the high net worth and ultra high net worth space to compete. And the ultra high net worth and high worth space still is where alts are being used with a little bit more discipline and history and maturity. But that aforementioned democratization is bringing in more and more demographics who are benefiting from what alts do inside of their portfolio. Our, our, our competitors are anyone that's delivering wealth management solutions. And we even have some opportunities for bank-based RIAs that are part of a bank. Some of the smaller banks are almost like independent banks, have these investment solutions within their firms. You walk in the door and you can go to the right and get your deposit CDs and you can go to the left and have an investment portfolio done for you. All the banks are doing that nowadays. Well, the smaller ones are using the firms in the independent space and branding that as their own to bring those solutions on a plug and play basis to their depositors. Do you think over time, the platform that you're building will evolve into offering a lot of those other services that you mentioned, things like lending or other things that a bank does? You've seen some of the other platforms offer a lot of these services as well. Do you feel like the independent space will almost evolve Maybe not structurally from the fact that those advisors are still independent, but it'll look more like a bank wealth management platform. I don't think that the independent space is ever going to become banking and lending. It will be an access point where you can advise clients as part of their overall investment and financial discipline as to what balance sheet opportunities and lending is best for them. And in family office services platforms, you see this today. I do see that broadening to the independent space where clients of all wealth demographics are going to look to their independent financial advisor, financial planner, 
for advice on how to access balance sheet and how to use lending in a disciplined way. The financial crisis proved to us that too many people were using leverage and didn't understand the risks associated to it. So many people felt, if a bank's willing to lend me money, I must be an okay credit. There is that trust. And frankly, it's not an unjustified trust, but it was misplaced trust, which was a a real reckoning that took place. I think that independent financial advisors and the relationships they have with families and clients is going to broaden their responsibility inclusive of lending. The smart banks and maybe some smart technology is going to prove to be those that come to the independent space and say, we want to be your balance sheet. We want to provide you that access. I think absolutely you're going to see that. Interesting. That actually is an interesting parallel with the fintech world. You've seen some banks or banking as a services businesses partner with banks so that they're renting certain services. It sounds like you think that the wealth management ecosystem might evolve to a place where there might be more renting than owning in certain cases. I, I hear what you're saying, and I understand that description, and, and I can't say I disagree. I would say it's more partnering than renting. You find the right banks, you find the right balance sheets who understand what clients' needs are, and those advisors can actually filter for the bank ahead of time that, yes, this client is a good credit, and you are a good lender for this client, and we're going to bring them to you. That's going to happen more and more, I think. So I don't think you're renting the platform. I think you're partnering with the platform. Well, that brings up an interesting topic when it comes to alts. You've talked about platforms who you could potentially partner with, the iCapitals, the Cases, and others of the world. That, to me, at this point, feels like table stakes for any wealth management platform, whether it's Wirehouse, Bank, Wealth Management Platform, or Independent. What, in your view, is the differentiator when it comes to alts? Because any advisor can work with any of those platforms and get access to certain investment products and or use the infrastructure to source their own products. Okay. In my view, the first differentiator is the technology and the reporting that that provider can put around every alternative investment. And that benefit is not just to the client and the end user. That benefit is to the client, the end user, the financial advisor, and the sponsor. The six-month lag in valuations for private equity, the three-month lag in hedge funds, and when you go into the secondary market, understanding values, there's so much complexity to that that the true differentiator will, in fact, be technology. Second to that, which one of those providers can be the best outsourced due diligence solution for the independent space? Due diligence should never be viewed as a check-the-box regulator We've done enough for the regulator that we said, oh, sure, we, we did our due diligence on that. And we have a file that's this thick and they have one guy sitting in there at the firm who's doing the due diligence. Due diligence is investment due diligence and it's operational due diligence. And understanding operational due diligence without investing and spending money and hiring third parties is impossible. So the best firm that you mentioned in that space that's a provider of access to alt is also going to bring you great solutions that have outsourced due diligence that's done extremely well. And then third to that, I would say, look, performance is important. Don't just tell me right now private credit is hot. I know private credit is hot. And who's going to be the best at providing us private credit? We hear the names, we know who they are, and yes, frankly, they'll be extremely good at it. And those firms have to be responsible to not turn into fee machines, but they have to remain 
investment machines. Never lose your DNA as an investor because you're generating so much in management fees. So that brings up an interesting point in that regard. I think asset managers at a certain point in size and scale, they do have to think about how they grow their business. And that's often from AUM. It doesn't mean that it necessarily has to affect performance, but in certain parts of the market, I'd say maybe venture more so than private equity, just to provide an example and shape around that, fund size does potentially impact returns. How do you think about that at Arox and with the advisor teams or platforms that you're working with about the types of managers that you'd look to get access to on the point of finding the best managers from an investment performance perspective? One of the reasons that I was so attracted to partner with Redbird Capital was the culture of the firm. Right? I loved that they were an $8 billion private equity firm rather than a $100 billion private equity firm, but the culture is what really attracted me. The culture was one where all of our investments are truly targeted. They're very targeted and they're targeted as we use flexible capital with entrepreneurs and C-suite executives who share our vision and strategy. And then we build a plan together. Culturally, that set it apart. If you look at the great firms today, even those that are huge, that have cultures of investing, not cultures of sales and fee generation. Fortunately, in the alt space, particularly in private equity, those cultures of investing, I believe, have remained extremely prevalent. And we do have the opportunity with some of these great firms to be able to continue to bring solutions to our clients that provide them that differentiated part of their portfolio. I think iCapital calls it investing beyond 60-40. I love that. I think that's really cool. And it was on your podcast. And I think Lawrence Calcano was talking about that. And I thought that was a pretty good way to, to put it. So in private equity, I think there's great cultures that stick to investing. In the hedge fund space, you have to be very targeted. That's where I think finding emerging managers that are still at that 200 million to 500 million AUM can be a great advantage, but you need a really good due diligence guy to, or gal to, to flesh those out. On that point, how do you think the independent wealth community figures out how to work with the emerging manager ecosystem? There's the, obviously the larger funds and brands, they have teams that can work directly with the wealth channel. Some of the smaller funds, maybe they can work with some of these the investment platforms, the iCapitals, the cases, the allocates, et cetera, of the world. But I do think there's this missing middle where you have a lot of smaller, more emerging managers. This could be across various asset classes, hedge, especially middle market, lower middle market, private equity, private credit, venture, where these smaller managers, they're generally not going to be large enough or have the track record because they might be a spin out or a fund one or two to raise from the institutional community, endowments, foundations, et cetera. They're going to work with the wealth channel. That's family offices. That's probably advisors if they have the ability to connect in with them, et cetera. How does the wealth channel evolve to the point where that channel can become a place where a lot of emerging managers in a more systematic way, where they can understand what the sales cycle looks like with the wealth channel, ends up partnering with firms that are part of RX or other platforms? Well, it's a really good question, and I can't answer it. I cannot tell you how it's going to happen. I can tell you I would give advice. That's how it should happen. Let's hear um, it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't predict exactly how it's going to happen. Look, I was fortunate enough to be in a position of Raymond James where I was responsible for global wealth solutions. Raymond James, I believe today, has $1.3 trillion in assets under administration. A large portion of that was part of the global wealth solutions 
assets that we oversaw as a firm, including uh, all alts and, and structured products and, and uh, those solutions. I will tell you that when you're part of a firm like that, you have a robust infrastructure to do due diligence and have a delivery and distribution team that can make sure the end users, the right end user, and that the input of the product is the right product for that platform. So to your point, you're absolutely right. The smaller firms don't have that luxury. And I say this emphatically as my advice, do not take risk to just try to be differentiated and bring a small emerging manager onto your platform without having the internal expertise or the outsourced expertise to do it. And do not be influenced by that buy side manager to the point where you put it in the hands of your clients, unless you've really you've done that scrubbing with that internal expert that you have or the outsource expert that you have. And those outsource experts exist. Spend the money before you put that solution on your platform and do it with a very, very skeptical eye. I have to say, one of the greatest experiences of my career when we sold Alex Brown to Raymond James was having the privilege when I was responsible for global solutions, being in investment committee meetings with Tom James. Tom James is the chairman emeritus of Raymond James. He is one of the smartest men I will ever know in my life. He and I would sit at these investment committee meetings at opposite ends of the table. I was always bullish on these alt investments, and he was always a skeptic. We came at it from two angles, and he was right all the time. Not that I was wrong all the time, but he was always right. And part of his messaging was not that the investments were bad, not that the tools were wrong, but that the team better be doing a detailed scrubbing, so, so detailed and disciplined before this gets in the hand of a single mom and pop with with his firm's name on it. And it was such a great experience to learn. And he saw, he sniffed things out that very, very few people would be able to do so. It taught me, it really was a great learning experience for me. And, and you look back at your career of who'd you learn from and who were the greats and who were right, even if you disagreed with them sometimes. And Tom Day, James was definitely uh, a standout in my career. It's such a f- great segue into something you said earlier, which is, as you talked about the evolution of the wealth management industry, all these different products that kept coming, mutual funds, ETFs, structured products, now alts. What advice would you give to younger advisors or advisors who are managing their own businesses on how to approach and think about alts just as you thought about all of these other product innovations within the industry? First, I would say to the young advisors, if you want to have a long-term career in the wealth management industry as a financial advisor, embrace the concept of diversification in a portfolio. And within that diversification, embrace alternative investments. Alternative investments inherently add diversification to a portfolio. And be sure to learn and understand what alternative investments are. Do not try to be a portfolio manager of those investments, meaning don't try to be the underlying portfolio manager picking and choosing the underlying investments. Simply try to find the best alternative solutions with the support of all the due diligence and research apparatus that are out there for you and institute them into portfolios using a great asset allocation discipline. I think that the greatest risk where I've seen clients get hurt and I've seen financial advisors blow up their careers is over-concentrating, taking unnecessary risks, 
or inviting in solutions into that asset allocation that were not well diligenced and well researched. This brings up an interesting question. If you think about alts and you think about where it's going as you think about this continuing intersection of alts and wealth, one, you have the platforms that are now accessible to many advisors, iCapital's cases, et cetera, of the world. The next phase seems to be things like co-investments because that could in theory be differentiated. Emerging managers, co-invest, et cetera. How do you think about the inclusion of something like co-invests or direct investing when you're a platform like, like RX and the advisor partners you work with as the next iteration of this differentiation within wealth management from an alts perspective? So if you as a financial advisor are going to leverage access to things like co-investing and direct investing, you've now taken that leap from being a financial advisor to being a portfolio manager with said expertise in that industry that that co-invest or direct investment is in. The number of financial advisors that truly have that expertise is very, very, very limited, okay? So I will say this, it's a great advantage to have, it's a great tool to have, access to co-invest, access to direct investing. So I'm not suggesting that it's bad, it's good, okay? But as a financial advisor, you need to make sure that the due diligence and expertise and research is available before you even suggest one of those investments to a client. That being said, unless that client is truly a family office, is truly ultra high net worth, or has expertise in that specific industry within which that direct investment is. Otherwise, you are entering a risk zone that the likelihood of having a good outcome is limited. And so I love co-invest. I love direct invest, but I make sure that a client understands they need to either understand it, afford it, meaning they're going to lose all their money if it doesn't work out. And that's the reality. It's a binary result. The likelihood, oh, you'll get some of your money back. No, no, no. It's zero or a lot more. Albeit, if there's real estate, it's different. I'm talking about growth investing in co-invest and direct. It's very important when you take that leap and you go into that zone that you have access to the experts and don't assume you're the expert. I don't. I would never assume I'm that expert unless it's in wealth management. That's it. Otherwise, I need someone else's expertise. On that point, what do you think the future of alts looks like within the wealth management ecosystem? I think alts that today in the independent world is probably 1% to 3% of overall AUM will, within a decade, be 15% of overall AUM and ultimately will be a 20 to 30% number. You're getting fewer and fewer companies going public. More and more public companies are going private one way or, or the other. Uh, I think that ultimately, we as an industry in the alt space are going to have to get better and better and provide more liquidity and provide more transparency and provide more fee uh, commoditization. That's going to happen naturally over time. But alternative investing is going to no longer be able to call itself alternative investing because it's not so much going to be the alternative. It's going to start to become the term you used earlier, table stakes. Funny you say that. Lawrence and I recorded a podcast this week in New York, and that was exactly what we talked about was that it's no longer going to be alternative. So 
I think that is where this is headed. It's just going to be part of a portfolio, which is, I, I think, a fascinating concept when you think about where this goes and how it resides in any investor's portfolio. I also want to ask, because you've seen so many different evolutions of wealth management, you've worked with so many different people in this space, so many different models in this space. How do you evaluate advisor teams and what does great look like to you? That question is a really good one. And it's one I think about all the time. Great advisor teams, first of all, have a discipline. They have a a true process around how they advise clients, and they have a true process around how they acquire clients. The great ones have been deliberate and methodical and patient. Those are the most successful. If you look at the firms, the large wirehouses, or the great independent firms, every one of those top advisors is exactly what I just said. They're deliberate, they're disciplined, they're methodical, and they're patient. And a term I've used many times is that we as financial advisors should strive to be an artisan of our craft, to be absolute experts, doctorates in what we do for a living, because it means so much to clients. I, lo I look at a team and I try to get a feel for their discipline, their process, their trajectory. Then you look at their expertise. How do you manage a portfolio? How do you advise clients? What does it look like? And if I see that across the board, there is some degree of consistency and continuity, that's a reflection of a good team. You have customization with each client and with each family, yet there is a disciplined process and implementation across the, the practice that you can see. Then you look at their reporting. How are they communicating amongst themselves and to their clients? Really, really important. So you put those things together, then you get a feel for the cultural aspect of that team. And do they fit? Do they fit what you're doing? Are you going to enjoy working with one another? Are you sure you can deliver to them what they need? Again, great financial advisors deserve for their partners and their firms to deliver to them on every day what they need to take care of their clients. Those are the things I look for in these teams. But really, I feel very strongly we should all strive to be absolutely great at what we do. And by the way, alternative investments is a great reflection of a financial advisor who wants to be great. Are you, as a physician, using the same medication and the same process that we did 30 or 40 years ago? Or are you now instituting modern technology and modern medicine to make sure that as you heal your clients or your patients, that that extra 100 basis points of alpha or that extra 100 basis points of protection in a portfolio is the same as healing a patient a little faster? with a little bit less pain. From that perspective, do you think the background going forward of advisors will start to look different given, to your point, the importance of understanding alts? In wealth management, great financial advisors have come from all sorts of industries and with all sorts of educations. I majored in political science but I, I, and minored in economics. Great investors have come from many backgrounds, but now more and more of them are coming from technology, from computer science. There was a period of time when physics was a big investment discipline as quant and algos became bigger and bigger. I think it's still going to come from diverse backgrounds. I think the inputs that go into their early stages of their careers are going to be the most important part about making them great wealth managers. But the ability to understand technology and the ability to have the emotional quotient to deal with families on what they need. It, it, that's going to become more and more prevalent. It's not a numbers game. 
it's truly a qualitative solution and game that we're playing. It's an important role that we play and it needs to be taken seriously. So you can come from all sorts of backgrounds as long as you're personally able to evolve, grow, adapt, learn, institute, and have discipline. Well, evolving, growing, and adapting. So I'm asking this question because I want to ask this to you in a few years when you come back on. A year or so into Arox, what's been the thing that's most surprised you? Two things. I mentioned to you earlier that I always viewed us as the varsity from the big firms. The quality of the professionals in the independent space has been eye-opening to me. It's inspiring to me. I love it. Some of the best financial advisors and best wealth managers have gone independent a long time ago. Their skills are excellent. And more and more of them are really starting to, to learn how to diversify a portfolio well. The second thing I would say is the volume of opportunity that exists for us as a strategic partner to these firms is far greater than I thought it would be. My partners at Redbird and Mike Zabick in particular said, be patient. We're going to see plenty of opportunity. We've seen plenty of opportunity and, and we've filtered out a lot, but we haven't had to filter out a lot for qualitative reasons. Some of them we just didn't fit with and they were great firms. They weren't really in our same strat strategy from a timeline or an evolution standpoint. So the quality I've been seeing has been really great. It makes you feel good about our profession. That's a great way to wrap this podcast up with one final question to come. This may be related to what you just said. But I always love to ask people what their favorite or most interesting alternative investment is. What's yours? Oh, my favorite and most interesting alternative investment. This is going to sound so plain vanilla, but I don't look at it from upside standpoint. I look at it from an overall standpoint. It's multifamily real estate. I know it's so boring, but it is just a great access point if you can get in at the right price at the right time and the right asset with a great manager. I, I love multifamily, always have. But you look, you look now at credit, the opportunities in credit are just remarkable. And some of the best investors in the world are in the private credit space. And getting access to them is really good for private clients. What's interesting about what you just said is that, to your point, those may not be the most flashy investments, but they're steady. They seem to work over periods of time. Sure, there may be cycles, but in the long run, they end up paying off, which actually is not too dissimilar from the business you're building in wealth management. So I think you encapsulated the way you think and how you think about the evolution of the wealth management space so well. Thank you, Michael. This was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you having me on. A pleasure to have you on, Hike. Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.